Again, if you could turn to Zephaniah, we'll get there in just a second. And so right now, what we are celebrating and what we've been teaching through the last three, this will be the third week of our Advent series. And so... You know, just to kind of recap, Advent, uh, the word Advent means anticipation, okay? It means appearing or it means coming into a place. And so when we talk about Advent, um, as we speak of it from the biblical time, they're anticipating a coming Savior, okay? This prophecy about this Jesus, this Messiah that God, that Yahweh would send for his people's redemption, for their restoration. Um, and so then in the Old Testament, leading into the beginning of the New Testament, that's their advent. That's what they're anticipating is, is Christ coming. Okay, And so we celebrate that. We celebrate what that means for us, that coming, that appearing, that coming into that place with Christ. And then we also celebrate in advent, in this, not only celebrating Christ has come, but also celebrating Christ is coming again. Okay, and so Advent not only reflects on what was, but it anticipates what is. And so as we've talked, you know, we at the Advent season kind of revolves around these gifts that God gave us through Jesus in this time. And a lot of times you'll hear, uh, you'll see these words printed on things or like for us preaching through a series where we discuss these things. And so the first week we discussed hope out of the book of Jeremiah, um, speaking of a hope beyond uh, the hardships and the hurt and all these things that they were going through, being able to see hope beyond what they were in. And then we talked about joy and how joy is more lasting, more sustaining than happiness. And so joy isn't uh, molded by our circumstances, but joy is defined through our salvation in Christ. Okay. And so then this morning, this morning, as we lean into the text, we're going to talk about this third gift that God gives us during this Advent season. And it's the word love. Okay. It's the word love. And so uh, before we really get into it, we have to frame up what we're talking about here when we talk about love. We know that there's six Greek words that the Bible uses to describe love. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to lean into one of those specific types of love. You know, God encompasses all these descriptions of love. Okay, God encompasses all these descriptions of love. But this morning, we're going to lean into one specifically. And so as I was prepping for this message this, uh, this week, um, you know, our kids say some really crazy stuff. Um, Reed, uh, at some point this week, I forget exactly what day it was, but he, he looked over at me. I think we were getting ready for bedtime. And he says, Dad, do other dads have hair? You know, like that would be a legit question. I guess he just sees me and he just assumes. I mean, a lot of the other dads he knows have, are bald. So he's like, I mean, do other dads have hair? Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes, and I'm really surprised sometimes when my kids will ask me questions that I'll, I'll have to think for a second. I wasn't really ready for. Um, but Grant, well, we were driving in the car and said, I don't know how these conversations come up. But he asked me, he said, Dad, why did God create us? You know, and so when those things come, sometimes you're like, "Ooh, like, all right, no, I need to be on my toes. Right. Um, but in that moment, when I started to think about it, I knew for me, I really need to answer this question correctly um, because we live in a very uh, individualistic, humanistic world that wants to say that everything that God does is about us. And I want to make sure that I communicate to my kids that it's not about me. OK, what God does and everything that God's about, even his very love that we're going to talk about this morning is not about me. OK, and so what I wanted to make sure to communicate is, you know, God did not create us because he because he needed us. Okay, God did not create us because he needed anything from us or that we provide him with anything. Okay, we do nothing for God. But that's why what we'll continue to talk about why this is also awesome and so beautiful and why God is so worthy of being praised is because God created us, not because he needed anything from us or because he had to have us. Psalm 50 Verse 10 says, God has, you know, this is kind of uh, imagery, but uh, he says, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, it's talking about God. Acts 17, 25, it says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Okay, God does not need anything from us. And so our creation you know, and so we have to understand why we're created to really begin to understand God's love for his creation. OK, and so God did not need anything from us. He did not create us for his good. 
Okay, but what we do know about God is that God is a creator and a creator gets delight out of creating. Right. If you're an artist, if you're uh, something of that nature where you're creative, when you make something, a musician, the right songs, whatever it might be, or you're a, a, a carpenter or anything like that. When you create something, it gives you delight to create. Right. And I don't I'm not that creative, so I don't really I can't so I can't relate that well. But for God, God is a creator. And so when he creates, he finds delight in what he creates, not because he needed it. Not because there's anything it provides him other than he finds delight in creating. Okay, the same way that there's a special relationship between a child and their parents. Okay, we have that bond, that connection that they can't have that relationship with anyone else. Okay, Revelations 4 verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Colossians 1.16 says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. Okay so God created us by his hand for him not for anything in particular we don't provide him with anything. But what we can do, and what we'll talk about here shortly, as we've discussed why we were created, now we can see God's love for his creation. Okay, how that applies and what that amounts to. Because the word that we're focusing on this morning is the agape love, okay? The, the, the love that is willful, purposeful love, a love that can also be translated a love for everyone, okay, that is offered to everyone. This agape love is the very essence at which the Bible describes God. 1 John 4, 8, it says, God is love. And so this agape love, this purposeful, willful love, it's an active love that seeks the well-being of the object of his love. Okay, And so what does God love? Because I know a lot of times, especially sometimes in church settings, when we talk about love, it can get kind of, you know, gushy and, you know, just like, all lubby-dubby, but we have to understand what God loves, okay? Let's not cringe at the word love because it's, it's, in, it's imparent. I mean, we have to talk about God's love, but we have to understand what God's love encompasses. What does He love? Psalm 33, 5, it says, He loves righteousness and justice, okay? God loves righteousness and justice, John 3.35, it says, The Father loves the Son, and He has given all things into His hands. John 5.20, it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. This is God talking about Jesus. And greater works than these will He show Him so that, so that you may marvel. So listen, God does not love sin. God does not love sinfulness. God does not love selfishness. God does not love pride. Any of these things that, if we're honest with ourselves, make us up, right? The very essence of who we are as human beings, God does not love. So do not hear me this morning that I, as, as we discuss this, that God loves the wickedness and nastiness that we participate in. But what God does love is He loves righteousness and justice and He loves His Son, Jesus. And so when Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us or given to us. Guess who becomes the beneficiaries of God's love for His Son, Jesus? We do. Not because I've done anything for it or earned it, because God doesn't love the very makeup of who I am. My sinful nature that I'm born with by, through Adam, through my physical birth. But we know that here in John 5.20 that he says that he loves the Son and that his purpose is to show these greater works through his Son so that you may marvel. So that we may marvel and be astonished and just be amazed by God's goodness and his love. And so God is about his glory. Let's get that clear. God is about his glory. And because... We are his creation. If we are in his family, if we are part of his people, then we aren't the center of it, but we are the beneficiaries of it. We do get to enjoy God's love. We do get to experience God's love. The effects of a loving God is that his creation will experience his love. Okay, the, 
the effects of a loving God is that His creation will experience His love. And when we talk about God's love, it is directed towards His people. Okay, and remember in the Old Testament, His people were a certain group of people. In the New Testament, that focus has shifted. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, it says, It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So this in Deuteronomy is talking about the people of Israel, that they were God's chosen people, that God in creation chose these people to be the focus of His blessings, to be the way that He would show His character and be the focus of His love. And that He guaranteed them that He would protect them and care for them because they were the focus of His love. And then we know that in the New Testament, that that love had broadened out to not only the Jews, but then also the Gentiles who are us. That could be the object of God's love, not just this particular group of people, but now that has been opened up because of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25, it says, As Christ loved the church. Christ loves His church. Christ loves, God loves His church. And so getting into the text this morning in Zephaniah, we're going to see a messianic prophecy, prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus, and how this applies to us, what this means for us, that if we are in that chosen people, in the church, we have put our faith in Christ and we are acknowledged as God's people, then we can experience the things that we're going to talk about this morning that His love brings. That His love bring, draws near and that His love carries promises are the two things that we're going to talk about this morning for His people. And so let's read together in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, and then we'll set the context for where we're at. Starting in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout out, O Israel. O daughter of Zion being uh, just another way of God talking about His chosen people, about Israel. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout out, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgment, judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival and so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Verse 20. And at that time I will bring you in. And at that time when I gather you and together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets, okay? One of the shorter books of the Bible. It's three chapters long. And, um, and so Zephaniah was a prophet during the time of King Josiah. King Josiah would be the last great king of Israel. Okay, he would be the last great king of Israel. Before this, they had two wicked, awful kings who had led the children of Israel away from God, worshiping idols, uh, blood sacrifices of their children, just horrible things that the kings were leading the people to do. And so then when King Josiah comes into the picture, he comes into the picture as an eight-year-old king. Okay, comes in as an eight-year-old king, and one of the things he does is his people find the book of the law. Okay, the, the book of the law that Moses had written that had been lost for a long time, and so they find it, and they begin to read it, and it actually says that King Josiah tore his clothing just in shame because of their sin, and how have we gotten so far away from God? And so King Josiah starts a reform. He starts to bring the people back into to God's hand. He wants to lead the people back to God and, 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 and drive out their complacency and reignite their passion for Yahweh, for God. Okay, so Zephaniah is stepping into this with King Josiah. 
And this is what Zephaniah says earlier on in the book in verse uh, chapter two of Zephaniah, uh, verse three says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so there had been these wicked kings, okay, that established all these habits of of ungodliness and just made it normal and natural for the people to be doing these things. And so Josiah and Zephaniah stayed into this, begin to do this. And so he speaks a message. If you read these Old Testament prophets, most of their kind of uh, outline is about the same. They start out by talking about the wickedness of the people and the sinfulness that they were partaking in and everything, God's judgment and his hatred for sin. And then they would begin to kind of crescendo into this message of hope in God. Okay, having to acknowledge the weight and the heaviness and the penalty of sin but pointing them to the hope that is in God. If they would turn from their sin and put their faith in God, almost every, especially the minor prophets, that's kind of the gist of their message, okay? You're wicked right now. You are living in sinfulness right now. But there is a God who will receive you if you will turn to Him. So church, we have to understand that to embrace the love of God and to really see God's love pan out in our our lives, we have to see the weight of sin. The penalty that sin brings with it. Okay, what it requires. Because then we can really begin to understand what it means that Christ has done for us. What it really means to have Christ in our life, to put our faith in Jesus. Okay, Zephaniah speaks in verse in chapters 1 and 2. He speaks of a message of communicating judgment on sin and, and its pollution of the people. And then getting into verse 3, but speaking hope in the midst of that. The penalty for sin and disobedience, but God's love for His people. So the two things we're going to talk about this morning are His love, what His love means for His people, that His love draws near, and that His love carries promises. So the first thing, His love draws near, which is what we celebrate in this Advent time, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, the Old Testament was God for us. Uh, the New Testament was God with us and, 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 and walking with us, God in us, God walking with us. And so what we see is that God's love draws near to his people. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The Lord your God is in your midst. Church, God is not a distant God. God is not a distant God. God is not a God who pushes away from us. Okay, remember in the, in, in the fact of sin is that God didn't push away from us. We pushed away from God. We pushed away from God because we wanted sin more than we wanted Him. Okay, that's how the world began. That's how everything began. And so God pursues us. He's telling them here, He says, God is in your midst. I am pursuing you. Okay, and it's not because God needs us. It's because God recognizes that we need Him. Okay, he's looking into these sinful people's lives and he sees they need me. So he was pursuing them. He said, the Lord your God is in your midst. He says the king of Israel before this in verse uh, in verse 15. He says, the king of Israel, I am your ruler. I am in your midst. And so he says that he brings that that distance that his God's love comes with his nearness. Okay, God is a God that is close. God is a God that is involved. God is a God that is present. You know, deists would believe, people who believe in deism, they would believe that God created us and He has no hand in our, in, in our lives, has nothing to do with us, created us and let us go. But the Bible would speak differently. It says that He is near. These sinful people that Zephaniah spends two chapters telling them how wicked he is, how wicked they are, he says that I am in your midst. I am near you. I am near you. His love comes with his nearness for his people. For his people. And then as sinful people, we think that God looks into our lives and sees our mess and says, I don't want anything to do with that. That if we are in Christ... He looks into our lives, sees our mess, and sees even more why He needs to draw near to us. Even more why He needs to pull into us. And if there is any distance between us and God, it's because we're pushing Him away. 
It's because we're pushing him away. We're creating distance. But God pursues his people. God pursues his people in the midst of their wickedness. That if you are in Christ, God pursues us. And we see this in John 3.16. You know, very well-known verse. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. You know, all, we, we hear that all the time. Uh, Jeff Robinson with the Gospel Coalition, he says it like this, though. He says the, world, uh, the, the word world in John refers more to badness rather than bigness. Okay, rather than the number of people, he's speaking of the wickedness of people when he says this, that God so loved the world. God sending love is to be admired, not because it is, it's extended to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing, not to so many people, but to such wicked people. God sent his love to wicked people like us. We were wicked. We were wicked. We, we are. We are drawn to wicked things. But God still draws near to us. God pursues us because he knows we need him. That is the very essence of God's love, that agape love, that willful love. That's the joy and the reminder of this season, church, that the, the gospel, that despite the badness, God has not abandoned. That in spite of our condition, God is still drawing near. That if you're a child of His, He is still drawing near to you. Zephaniah is calling the people in Zephaniah 2.3 to seek and to rest in this work of love and grace to be hidden from judgment. And God tells us in Matthew 7.7, 7, if we seek, we will find Him. That if we are seeking after God, God is not hiding from us. God wants us to find them. He is making himself available to us. If we feel distant, if you feel distant from God this morning, his invitation is seek me. I'm not hiding. I'm here. His love for his people, when we put our faith in Christ and he sees Christ's righteousness and not my wickedness, it says that he is near, that he is in the midst of his people. And he says that we are hidden from judgment and that we can begin embracing his promises. So God's love comes with his nearness. But then his love also carries his promises. So the second thing this morning that we'll see is that his love carries his promises. Starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. You know, that's an awesome truth for us to be reminded of, that because Christ has come, the judgment has been made. That if we have put our faith in Christ, then the judgment, the verdict has been set, and it's not guilty. That it's not guilty. That it doesn't matter where I find myself when I wonder, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. When we wonder, it says that the judgment has not changed because there's, there's statements in this text that we'll read. There, there's he has statements and there's I will statements. And so what God is telling his people, the people that are his, his chosen people, the very uh, beneficiaries of his love and his delight. He says that he has taken away the judgments, that the judgment has been taken away. That the verdict is sealed. And so if we are in Christ, the decision has been made. The gavel has been set down. That we are not guilty. Christ said on the cross, it is finished. And that judgment does not change. And that is a promise that as a child of God, if we are a saved believer in Christ, that we can rest in. That he has taken away the judgments. That it is done. Then he continues on. He said, he has cleared away your enemies. He has. He has taken away judgments. He has cleared away the enemy. He has made our path clear. That as we move, even though we may face opposition, he says that he has cleared away the enemy. That no enemy can keep us from moving in the direction that God's called us to. There is no enemy in us, around us, that can keep us from reaching where God is leading. He said he has cleared away the enemy. And then he begins with the I will statements. And for them, this was prophecy about Jesus speaking to what he will do. He's promising, guaranteeing, I will do this for you, for my people, my chosen people. Verse 17. 
says the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, a mighty one who will save. Church, we need the saving. We need the saving. If it's not from our enemy, it's from ourself. We need the saving. And he says, I will save. I will save you. And then he continues on and he says that he will rejoice over you. That's that delight that we're talking about that God has in his creation and the object of his love, that he will rejoice over those who he has saved. And then I love this last one right here. He says in verse 17, he says, he will quiet you by his love. He will quiet you by his love. And so this is an opposite statement of what we see in Zephaniah 1.14. In Zephaniah 1.14, he talks about, I'm going to flip and read it because I'll forget what it says. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter and the mighty man cries aloud. And so what this is, is this is a war cry. This is a war cry that he's talking about in the beginning when he's talking about the wickedness and the sin and the ugliness of the world and everything that's in it. He says that it's 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 a, it's a cry, a mighty cry. But here, when Jesus, when God is saying his I will statements, he says, I will quiet you. That he will quiet you by his love. This is the opposite of a war cry. This is the opposite of a war cry. This is a celebration of a victory. That I don't have to cry out against it. It's not a war cry anymore. It's a celebration of victory. He says, I will do this by my love. And continuing on with the I will statements. Verse 18, he says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. He said, I will gather those who mourn. This is the broken. This is the disappointed. This is those who are ready to give it in, to give up, to quit. He says, I will gather those. It's this sense of, of embrace that he talks about here. He says, I will grab a hold. I will gather. I will bring those into myself. Those who mourn. Those who are broken. Those who are disappointed. Those who are, are in despair, depressed. He said, I will bring them in. in. Verse 19. He says, behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will deal with all your oppressors. And he continues on and he says, and I will save the lame. I will save the lame. Now remember when we read things like this, we have to read them in context of, of what they would have been insinuating. And so whenever we see the Bible through the Old Testament or the New Testament talk about the lame, uh, a lot of times it's talking about the physically uh, disabled or some type of disablement uh, that is uh, affecting them. And the people in this time looked at those things as a curse, that God hates you because you're, you're lame, because you have some type of disability or some type of problem. Okay? And he tells them here, he says, God will save the lame. God will save them. God will bring them in. That's the kind of people God is looking for. God is looking for the broken. God is looking for the contrite of heart that Psalm would tell us. God is looking for those who think that no one else is looking for them. And so not only could this lame be talking about a literal, another translation would say limp, okay, some type of disability, some kind of ailment, but it could also be talking about a figurative limp, a spiritual limp that maybe we've experienced some hurt that has wounded us and that has caused us to limp along in life, Right? Maybe not physically, but maybe emotionally, spiritually, mentally. That there's been something happened to us in our life that has caused us to limp through life. He says, I will save those that are mine. Continuing in verse 19. He says, I will gather the outcasts. This word outcast can also mean those driven out. Those pushed away, those who don't have a place, those who don't have a home somewhere where they belong. He says, 
He says that I will gather them. I will, that same word, that embrace, that bringing in, that you feel like you don't have a place, God says, I have a place for you. You feel like you've been driven out, God says, I am bringing you in. God says he will gather the outcast, the one that is looked down on, the one that is pushed out and driven away. And continuing on in verse 19, he says, I will change. Listen this morning, church. He says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Only a loving, compassionate God can step into someone's life and change their shame into praise. That He can take my messy, broken, sinful life and mold it into something that could turn into praise. Because I don't know about you, but whenever I've found myself falling short, the last thing I want to do is praise. All right, the last thing that I want to do is worship. But whenever I'm reminded of this God, of this God of love, who says he comes into our life and he takes our shame and he repurposes it. He molds it into something greater and better and changes it where it can be used as praise. Remember, if we acknowledge God, he will make our path straight. He says that if we'll acknowledge him, if we will rest in him and be his people, he said he will change our shame into praise. And then he also says that he will change our shame into renown. And this word renown speaks of a place, a standing, an importance, a value. He says that he will take us and change what has made us shameful and make us valuable. Only God can do that. And, and only through acknowledging that we need that will God do that. You know, we've talked about it before. before. Uh, Brother Garen has said it all the time that God is a perfect gentleman and God's not going to do anything to us that we're not allowing, inviting him to do for us. If we want to live in our shame, God will allow us to live in our shame. If we want to live in our sin, God will allow us to live in our sin. But that very moment that we cry out to him, he's right there. The Bible says that he is near, that he will answer, that if we call out, he will answer. If we knock, he will open we seek, we will find. So he takes us, takes what we screw up, and he makes it something new. And then continuing on in verse 20. He says, at that time I will bring you in. And at the time when I gather you together. I love that. Gather you together. You know, he's speaking of a broader sense than just a few People, a handful of people. He's speaking of a time when he will bring all people together, regardless of where you're born, your race, your whatever. He says, we'll bring all you together. He says, at that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the, of the earth when I restore your fortunes. I love that. When I restore your fortunes, you know, and um, I don't know how many of you watch this now uh, or if you still do for a long time. I don't know why, but I was into these um, these shows like American Pickers and uh, Pawn Stars and these these things where they would deal with these old just kind of vintage stuff or, 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 or valuable kind of unique things. And, um, you know, uh, especially Amer that American Pickers, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but, you know, they go hunting through garbage. They go hunting through all these things um, for things that are valuable or at one point were valuable. And usually when they find them, they're dirty, they're nasty. Sometimes they're even a little broken. And what's amazing about them is that whenever they're looking for their th these things, they're not looking for them because they lose value when they find them with alterations. Okay? They're not looking for these things that are altered. Because what they want to do is they want to get them, they want to find them, and they want to restore them. 
back to their original purpose, back to their original look, because they've lost value if they try to add things to it and try to make it something different or try to uh, alter it some way. But what they want to do, and especially the Pawn Stars guys, they'll look at that and say, well, that's been altered. That's no good. It's lost value because it's been altered. What we want is we want it as is, broken, dirty, nasty, and I want to restore it back to its original intent. Church, that's what God is doing for us. God is seeking after us in our brokenness, in our mess, okay? And too often we're trying to alter things. We're trying to add to, to try to make things better. If I could work hard enough, if I could be good enough, if I could act right, then God would take me and I would have my value again, right? But what God looks at us and he says, he says, I want to bring you back to the garden. I want to bring you back to your original intent. I want to restore you. And that's what he tells them here. He says, when I restore your fortunes, God wants to restore us. He's not looking to alter us. He wants to restore us back to what he made us to be. The Imago Dei, the image of God. He created us in his image. His intention is to restore that. And so what we see is God's process of restoration all through the Bible. The Bible is one long narrative of God's redemptive story through one bloodline leading to Jesus, redeeming all people, restoring them to their original intent. Joel 2 verse 25, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the, destroyer, the cutter, He says, I will restore those years that have been robbed from you. Titus 2.14, talking about Christ, he said, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, and so when God, God is intention is to restore us, to redeem us for good works. God has purpose. He's not only restoring us just for the sake of restoring us. He's restoring us, redeeming us for good works, for things that he has us to do. So not only is he bringing us back to our original intent, but he has given us value and he has given us purpose for his glory. Not for me, but for him, for his glory in this world, for good works. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, talking about his church, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not not a people, but now you are God's people. I love that. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, becoming his people has made possible, was made possible through the fulfillment of this mighty one that Zephaniah talks about. And that's through Jesus. That through Jesus, we are brought into those promises. Through Jesus, when we repent of our sin, we turn away from our sinfulness and understand we need a Savior in Christ and and, and we put our faith in Him, it says that we are brought into those promises and that we are brought into that love that is near and that love that carries promises with the intentions on restoring us. So as we wrap up, what can He restore for us? What does he need to restore for us? I think there are four things that Christ restores in us that we need desperately for him to restore. And those years that Joel talks about. The first thing is he can restore our Christless years. He can restore our Christless years by us relying on Christ himself. That the retroactive act of God's Death on the cross for us not only forgives me of my past sin, my, my future sins, but my past sins. He said he will restore our Christless years. He will restore our fruitless years. Those years that we look at and seem wasted, he says he will restore that. He will restore that if we abide in him. If we will abide in him, if we will stay close to him, draw near to him, drink from his living water. Then he says that he will restore our rebellious years. He 
He will restore the years when maybe we were running from him. We were just running, sprinting away from him as quickly and as fast and as hard as we can. He says that if we'll submit to him, that he will restore those years. And then he will also, he'll restore our painful years. He'll restore our painful years if we remember that he is good. God is the only person, the only being, the only good God that could take our mess, even our pains, and make them for our good. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses our pain for our good. God can speak to us even louder sometimes through our pain than through our pleasure. You know, because the thing is, you know, we read all this about restoration and we read all this about God saving and all this. 20 years from this, they'll be in exile. Jerusalem will be destroyed. People will die. They'll spend 70 years as captives of the nation of Babylon right after this. But what God does with our suffering is He uses it for our sanctification. God takes the bad in our life, and only God can do this. Take the bad in our life and make it from our good. God uses our suffering, God uses our pains to move us from rebellion to reliance. To move us from from this place where we're pushing against Him to this place where we're embracing Him. God uses our pain and God calls us to the table to experience that. God draws us in. Nothing in hand, actually the opposite, with empty hands, surrendered, faithfully, waiting for what He will give us. God's love and delight in His people isn't an excuse to sin. God's love and delight in His people is not an excuse to live in open, rebellious sin. But it is our very motivation that we turn away from it and that we run to Him because of that fact. When we have that relationship with Christ, that restorative relationship with Christ that is bringing us back to our original intent, and we are reminded about that at the cross, That the cross is our intersection of sanctification. It's where suffering meets saving. We can be reminded and remember what Christ did for us. What greater love than it is to give one's life for his brother. And because of this love, how do we respond? Do we truly understand what that love means? Do we truly understand in these verses as Zephaniah is talking about Jesus who would come and save and rescue and, and gather and all these things and restore Do we truly understand it? You know, a lot of times when we think about the love of Christ and that debt being paid, a lot of times we think about it like if I had uh, one of my buddies waiting at my house for me while I was out of town and and a a mailman delivered a bill. And then that buddy decided to maybe it was my water bill. It's not much. My buddy paid that for me. You know, a lot of times we look at the sacrifice of Christ as like paying that little bill. Like, oh, thanks, God. I appreciate that. When in reality, the bill God paid is like that same friend waiting at my house and the mafia showing up looking for my head because I owe them more money than I could ever think to give them. And him paying that bill, that is what Christ on the small scale did for us. He paid a bill for us that required death. And Jesus paid that price on the cross for us. He gave himself for us so that he could gather us, so that he could turn our shame into praise and renown, so that he could uh, worship over us with gladness, so he could quiet that sound from a, a roar of war to a quiet celebration of victory. And so how do we respond? And I think Zephaniah 14, 314 tells us this is how we should respond. In verse 14, he says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Why are we so subdued about what God has done for us? If God has done this for us, how else do we respond? How else do we respond? And he calls us to action. Church, that if we're a believer this morning, if you have put your faith in this saving work of Jesus, He's called us to something. Hebrews 12, and then I'll be done. Hebrews 12, 12. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths up for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See it. See to it that no one fails to obtain grace, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. Church, he is calling us to lift our hands and go to work. Strengthen our knees and begin to move. Strive for peace with everyone and with holiness and obtain the grace of God. Because that's what saves us is his grace. And so this morning, I'm going to ask Landon, if you'd come up and... um, What I want us to do, I'm, we're not going to do a song at the end. What I want us to do is, I want us to think and respond, because I don't want our response to be limited to this moment. We're just going to shake things up a little bit. Um, I hope that your response carries over into when you walk out of this place. But I want us to think about two things this morning. As you sit, Let's um, just eliminate distractions. Close your eyes, bow your head with me, and just reflect for a moment on two things that I want us to realize. As we reflect on this passage of Scripture, as we think about God's love and how that applies to His people, that you would remember two things. That God has made a way for us to rest in His promises. That God has made a way for us through Jesus Christ to rest in this love that is near, that brings Him near and this love that carries promises, these promises of of gathering of the oppressed, of changing shame into worship, all these promises that if we would rest in God and His provision and His goodness, that He will begin to do these things in our lives, not stepping into it, working for it. The second thing that I want us to understand first thing is that God has made a way for us to rest in these promises and the second thing is that it's not because we've done so great and awesome to deserve you know the church uh, the, the, the people of Israel all through the Old Testament were God's people and if you look through the Old Testament they were constantly screwing up they were constantly failing God was constantly having to pronounce judgment over them but then reminding them of the hope that they have in him God had every right all throughout the Bible time and time again to wipe the slate clean and start over with them. And he chose not to. And as the church now, when we put our faith in Christ, he speaks those same promises to us. That there's nothing that we could do bad enough that he would let us go. And there's nothing that we could do good enough that he would hold on to us tighter. We bring nothing to the table. He invites us, hands open, Acknowledging our sinfulness, understanding His goodness, and resting in His saving power of grace. There is nothing, nothing that we do that earns us that. But the one thing we can do is receive it and walk in it and begin to experience it and live in it. You know, I read this this week just as we continue to think and ponder those things. that every one of us is walking according to the will of God, whether we want to or not. And that we will carry out God's purposes. And I read this quote this week. It says, for you will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. Will you serve God worshiping Him and acknowledging His goodness? Or will we serve like Judas selling out God for the lesser things that the world tries to give us. I pray this morning as we reflect on those things, understanding that God has made a way through Christ and understanding that it's not because we've done good enough to earn it or deserve it, that He invites us in. And so what I would ask for us to do just right now is we're going to spend the next two minutes thinking, praying, pondering. God, help me respond to this beyond this moment. 
then I'm going to pray for us and then Brother Garen's going to come up and dismiss. But I pray that you would truly, truly lean into this love that we've talked about this morning and what it would mean and look like for you to embrace that in your life, lead your family in that way and live your life in that way in response to this goodness, to this love. Him, respond to Him. said he wants, he will restore what we've lost, what we've wasted. Maybe we've wasted so much time. Maybe we've wasted so much time. God said he will restore that, take that shame and transform it into praise. God, I thank you for your word and the truths that your word communicates to us. God, I'm so thankful that you're a good and loving God towards your people. God, that even in your hatred of sin, in your justified anger towards wickedness, God, that you purposefully made a way for us to be able to rest in your promises to be able to be near to you, to come boldly before your throne. That you tell us if we would put our faith in Christ, believe in Him, surrender to Him, rest in Him, accept His righteousness on our own, Lord, that we get to reap the benefits of your delight and love in your people. Lord, I pray this morning that there would be nothing that holds us back. surrendering to you. God, the things we don't understand, the God, the things that we don't know, Lord, you tell us that you will reveal to us those things. God, that you call us to come with the pieces broken and that you put it together. God, not that we put it together before we come. God, I pray that we step into what you have for us and allow you to reveal to us what it is you have, what you want us to do, who you want us to be. God, use us as a church. God, continue to bless us, be with us. God, be with these families and everyone who are sick. God, I pray that our response this morning would bleed over into every moment after this today, into our lunch, into our family times, into our work times on Monday, God. Lord, I pray you give courage and strength to step into the life that you're calling and inviting people into this morning. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.